Welcome. This episode of Inside the Genome is a recent recording of Myriad Oncology Live, a webinar hosted by me, Dr. Thomas Slavin, Chief Medical Officer for Myriad Genetics. The opinions and views expressed in this recording do not necessarily represent those of Myriad Genetics or its affiliates. To participate in a future recording, please visit Myriad Live for a list of dates, times, and subjects. I look forward to exploring the world of genetics with you all. Uh, welcome to Myriad Oncology Live. Um, thanks for coming on. Uh, a little Thank house you so much for having me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, excited to have you. So we have uh, today we have special guest, Dr. Holly Peterson on. Um, I, I will have Dr. Peterson introduce herself in, in one minute. I'm going to do a little housekeeping as always to start. Um, and so uh, today uh, we're going to be talking about translational. Uh, and hopefully everybody can see my screen. I'm, I'm actually in the office today, so a different monitor setup. But um, can everyone see the, <clears throat> the agenda screen? I'll, I'll take that as a yes. <laughs> it looks like we're seeing the uh, Myriad Oncology. Yes. Website. Yeah. So great. Okay. Thanks, Brad. Um, so yes, uh, today we're going to talk about uh, translation of uh, PRS into clinical care. This, you know, has kind of been an evolving series. I mean, we we did one, uh, we did two previous uh, PRS uh, talks this year. The last one with was with uh, Alicia, who uh, really uh, did a deep dive in the science. After uh, talking with folks uh, after that uh, one, I think people like the science, but, um, you know, there's kind of a desire to just know like, okay, yeah, you know, the science looks good, but you know, what do, what do I do with this? You know, how is it being used? These, these kind of more clinical questions. So that's, that's really the focus today. Um, we uh, just posted out through the year. I'm going to put one more in November uh, that we're working on right now. We're trying to we're using more external guests, uh, as people have probably noticed, which is also why um, I'm not doing them necessarily every single week. I, I'm trying to do two to three a month is the goal. Uh, December is going to be just a short month uh, with, uh, you know, the holidays and everything. So we'll, uh, you know, keep that one a little light. But this one will be good. We'll, we're going to have uh, Gwen uh, Turner on. Uh, and she is the head of um, diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion uh, at uh, Myriad, uh, just very interesting background, recently started. Uh, so she'll, she'll lead that one. Um, and then uh, we're going to get into variant classifications just because we haven't, um, you know, circled back to variant classifications for some time. Um, and we'll talk about differences between AMP and ACMG. Uh, Aaron Munt, uh, one of our variant classifiers, will uh, be on here uh, for this one. Uh, and it will be good. She has uh, some really interesting um, data and, uh, you know, slides to walk through. Uh, and then we'll just open it up for questions. Um, and today uh, we have um, Edie is on as well. And so um, Edie Smith, I don't know if you want to unmute yourself um, and uh, introduce yourself, but uh, Edie will be, uh, you know, facilitating some of the discussion today and then also running the chat, which is why I wanted to uh, introduce her. So, you know, if this is your first time, feel free to unmute yourself, ask literally whatever question you want. Um, you know, that's, we're here for you. So, you know, hopefully, you know, questions get answered um, and you leave uh, with more education and, and smarter about these kind of topics than uh, you came on. Um, and, you know, we try to keep these theme-based, you know, today's is on, uh, you know, polygenic risk scoring. However, you know, if you have just a burning question about something else, uh, you know, as it relates to her hereditary um, genetics, uh, feel free to, or, you know, tumor genetics, so, you know, you can ask that as well. Uh, so Edie, uh, will be running the chat. Edie, I don't know if you want to unmute yourself real quick and 
introduce yourself and what you do? You're on mute, Evie. Oh, Edie, you're on, looks like you're on chronic mute. I will ask to unmute you. Did that work? <laughs> Can you hear me now? Yes. Yep. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Sorry, I had to use a combination of phone and computer this morning. Zoom is acting up a little bit. So I thank you, TJ. My name is Edie Smith. I'm a medical science liaison for Myriad Genetics. I'm a nurse practitioner by training, uh, 30 years of clinical practice before retiring about five years ago and joining Myriad. My focus is on uh, primarily on the unaffected patient and um, cancer prevention and uh, uh, cancer detection. So I'm happy to uh, moderate the chat, um, ask questions, uh, put them in the chat and I'll keep an eye on everything. Yeah, great. Well, thank you so much. Um, and, uh, and before I forget, because I know I will, and I always do, uh, we do, um, uh, I did want to mention these are recorded now. So, um, if you, and I think it says that when you log on, but we do, we're putting all these up on our podcast, the uh, inside the genome podcast. So, um, uh, anything that says myriad live in front of it is from, uh, one of these, uh, myriad lives. Uh, so these are, you know, usually 50 minutes or so, you know, uh, so at least they're all archived um, and you can go back through if there was one you missed and was, uh, you know, something you uh, want to listen to. If you don't see uh, Myriad live in front of it, that's just uh, a standard podcast. So that's usually me sitting down with someone for, you know, 15 or 20 minutes and, and kind of going through a, a specific topic or, you know, aspect of that individual's uh, research and career. So like we did one with Holly. Uh, I don't know, probably about a year ago or so. That's uh, somewhere way down here. There's, oh uh, yeah, let's talk polygenic risk scores. So yeah, so we have tons of content. You can listen till your heart's content. So without further ado, wanted to um, introduce Holly. So Holly is amazing. Uh, she is uh, at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, so many know her as Dr. Peterson, takes care of uh, uh, you know many patients uh, needing uh, hereditary cancer expertise. Uh, she, I, I first met Holly as part of the City of Hope uh, training course, and she's been a good friend since then. Holly, I don't know if you want to, uh, you're already unmuted. If you want to tell folks a little bit more about what you do at uh, Cleveland Clinic and your, your general interests. Sure, sure. So I'm the director of medical breast services at Cleveland Clinic. We basically do everything non-surgical. It's sort of a unique model. We do diagnostics, personalized risk assessment, and risk management. And I personally focus on hereditary risk and risk management. Uh, I did a clinical fellowship with Dr. Karis Ang here at the clinic and then did a uh, the City of Hope course as well with TJ. And that's how we met. Edie and I also go back a long way and Deneen's on. I don't know how many years she and I have known each other for, um, but I've had a long-standing relationship with Myriad, and I'm very excited about the new polygenic risk score. I, you know, it was interesting, TJ, how you mentioned that um, there's, you know, there's the science, and then there's the translation into into the clinic, and. 
And I can't tell you how many hours Alicia and I spent, Alicia Hughes and I spent together trying to bridge that gap and sort of make that connection and, and uh, interpret a lot of the science that, that's going on uh, and make it clinically relevant. So uh, I hope that we're able to kind of touch on those things today. Yeah, yeah, because, you know, it is a new, new, you know, aspect of the field. So uh, with anything new comes, uh, you know, growing pains and trying to understand it and how to how to utilize it. So um, I know you put together uh, some slides because we were talking ahead of time. Uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> so <laughs> Ali has a, a slide deck. Uh, yes, thank you for for queuing that up. So um uh, you know, we thought it was uh, good, um, you know, Holly can go through some of um, the uh, work that she's been presenting, um, because it, it has a nice uh, translational, uh, you know, component to it. Uh, but yes, I mean, if uh, people are on and, and want to ask questions, and then for sure, you know, at the end of uh, this brief presentation, we'll, we'll, you know, pause, make sure that questions are answered. I have uh, some other, uh, you know, work that uh, I've been putting together on, you know, thinking of ways to conceptualize all this and, and um, you know, bring it into clinical practice. So if, if we have time, so take it away, Holly. Thank you so much again. Oh, sure. I think, you know, two of the biggest challenges are really the education of primary care providers and other uh, women's health providers caring for women in this space. And, and really working toward effective communication around risk. I just think that, that those are some of the areas where we're gonna probably see some, some of the biggest advances. Um, I just wanted to give a brief presentation discussing how single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs can add to the precision of breast cancer risk assessment explain how polygenic risk scores are generated and validated and outline the relevance of SNPs and the PRS to clinical practice with the potential to improve screening and prevention strategies. So, you know, in just a little over the course of my lifetime, we've really gone from genetics affecting a very few people with rare disorders to it becoming everyday clinical practice and increasingly personalizing medicine, essentially. Uh, in 1953, Watson and Crick were credited with uh, determining the double helical structure of DNA. In 1977, the laborious Sanger sequencing was introduced, uh, looking gene by gene at, at changes. And, and through that process in looking at really high-risk families, BRCA1 and BRCA2 were identified in 1994 and 1995. I don't have it on this timeline, but in 1997 was when I started at the Cleveland Clinic uh, with the high-risk center. So that was a very opportune time to sort of get in on, on the beginning of this journey. Uh, next generation sequencing and the completion of the human genome pro project really changed genetics entirely with the ability to sequence multiple genes simultaneously at a much lower cost. 
And in 2013, multi-gene panels became available, you know, which now are just commonplace. Everyone uses multi-gene panels. Um, but that wasn't the case prior to the fall of 2013. And now we're really looking at, at the next incredibly exciting addition, I believe, with the introduction of the polygenic risk score and substratification of risk, both in gene carriers and in non-gene carriers. This is how we've always, you know, historically looked at breast cancer. There's this 10 to 15%-ish slice of uh, the pie, which is attributable to hereditary cancer syndromes, uh, true genetic mutations, which are felt to be causal and inherited from one generation to the next. There's another segment of familial clustering, which is not gene related uh, per se, but possibly due to shared environmental influences, gene-gene interactions, shared dietary and exposure patterns. But the majority of breast cancer is sporadic. That is, it's it's seen in women who have no identifiable risk factors. And I think um, that may be about to change. You know, I think possibly uh, my hope with the polygenic risk score going forward is that we may be able to begin to identify low risk individuals or lower risk individuals in the general population. And, and that may help with screening strategies. You know, I mean, when you all know this, but when someone has, quote, you know, genetic testing, what we're testing for are these highly penetrant and moderately penetrant genes. But there are over 300 single nucleotide polymorphisms that have been discovered to date that individually confer very small levels of risk, but in aggregate may affect risk both in gene carriers and non-gene carriers and may explain that sort of missing heritability piece uh, that, uh, that, that we're really lacking. So these SNPs were discovered through genome-wide association studies, which is really a, a process where patients with a particular disorder are compared to patients without that disorder to see where there are genetic changes. And the SNPs that are associated with breast cancer were largely discovered in a very large population of uh, Caucasian European women. And that is not without its problems, as we'll discuss. So you can see BRCA1 by itself confers a very high level of risk, but you can also see that combining the effects of these SNPs uh, also can be significant. And this was the first landmark study published by Mavadat et al. in 2015, showing that a 77 SNP polygenic risk score was really able to substratify risk between uh, the highest quintile of the polygenic risk score 
resulting in higher lifetime risk estimates for breast cancer as compared to those at the lowest quintile. And this was validated both in women with and without family history. So this was exciting. But most of the data, as I mentioned, came from those of European ancestry. And so that was really an issue. Um, as Edie had mentioned, you know, primarily the patients that we see are the unaffected patient with family history. And at most, 5% of those patients will have a genetic mutation. With the multi-gene panel tests, about 25% will have a variant of uncertain significance, and that may be higher in certain ethnic groups where we don't have as much data, and those clinically need to be treated as negative. And in those patients and the 70% that test negative, we resort to mathematical risk modeling, but that's really so, um, you know, it, it, it is what it is, but it doesn't incorporate any of the patient's actual information genomic information into that risk estimate. And that's what's so exciting about this uh, polygenic risk score. So I was uh, fortunate to present this data at ASCO this year on the sort of recalibration and validation of a polygenic risk score that uh, that is meant to account for the changes that we see in people that are not European, because the, uh, the polygenic risk score, as it was derived from European populations, is quite accurate in European populations. But the goal was really to develop a, a, a PRS that had a high level of accuracy for all women in terms of good risk discrimination. That is the ability to tell high risk from low risk individuals and accurate calibration amongst women of different ancestries um, because the, the allelic frequency of SNPs is different in women of different ancestries. And so you can't use a European derived polygenic risk score in a person who's not European, uh, of European descent. So 93 selected breast cancer SNPs were used in combination with 56 ancestry-specific SNPs in order to develop this model. And you can see that before the model was created, there was an overestimation of risk in non-European ancestries. In fact, in women, uh, in black women, you can see that they have an estimated risk nearly twice that of white women, whereas we know that black women have a similar rate of breast cancer development, if not slightly lower. And so this European-based polygenic risk score needed to be recalibrated to avoid overestimating breast cancer risk in non-European uh, women. And so um, 
this is where Alicia and I really got into the weeds and had some fun. But this is the, uh, the these are the results of the discrimination again before it was recalibrated. And you can see that the odds ratio per standard deviation in Caucasian women is, is the highest and um, is the most statistically significant. Uh, and this was improved upon by the new model, which really took women's ancestry and determined it genomically. Uh, rather than using self-reported ancestry, it's felt that the major source ancestries for the contemporary U.S. population really come from the components of DNA that are contributed from the continents of Africa, East Asia, and Europe. And any U.S. woman can kind of be divided into her ancestral components from these three regions. And again, the allelic frequency of the SNPs differs in these different continents, and that needs to be taken into account in determining a polygenic risk score. And so each woman, rather than using self-reported ancestry, these ancestral SNPs were used to determine a woman's genomic ancestry. And then the proportion of each of these components was used in a weighted fashion appropriate for that continental ancestry to, to create a PRS for that woman that was more accurate uh, than if, if it hadn't been recalibrated. So you can see that as intended, the new PRS was recalibrated so that there was not no longer an overestimation of risk for non-European populations. There's a slight shift in the Hispanic population uh, due to a protective Amerindian SNP but if you take that away, it too centers around zero. And there was improved discrimination in all groups as well. Um, it did not reach the same level of discrimination for all women. You see that with Caucasian women, there is still this odds ratio per standard deviation that is higher in most groups we still don't have the discrimination that we would desire in Black women, but it's a start. It's a framework that we can build on as more data becomes available. And, you know, part of it is the lack of data that we have, but part of it is just the genomic diversity of Africa itself, which is really, a, you know, an issue. We're going to need even more data in the Black population to, to uh make things to, to give the discrimination that we want in that population. So we developed a framework for a PRS that's accurate for women of all ancestries and can be adapted as additional data becomes available. 
And this clinically validated PRS provides calibrated genomic risk discrimination for all US women and possibly for women around the world. It also, the PRS may be an aid for decision-making in gene-positive patients. And I have been taking care of gene-positive patients, as I mentioned, since 1997. And they are so excited about the possibility of substratifying their risk based on the polygenic risk score. And you can see from this paper by Gallagher last year uh, that by using the polygenic risk score, you know, we quote a woman with a BRCA mutation, an estimated lifetime risk of 70%, but it could be as low as 50%, which is still very elevated, or as high as nearly 99%. And that may be useful for some women with BRCA mutations in decision-making. But where it really probably is going to be most useful is in women with genes like CHECK2, ATM, and PALB2, where there's an incredibly widespread from a low-risk situation to a very high-risk situation. And in non-carriers, of genes, uh, especially in patients with strong family history. Um, this, this was such an exciting paper. Um, and you can see, say with check two, we, we estimate that a woman has a 20 to 30% lifetime risk. But by using the PRS, we can further substratify that such that it might be 6% or 71%. And certainly that can be helpful to people in terms of making decisions about their care. Um, this comes from a more recent paper looking at check two carriers. And again, about two thirds do have that uh, 20 to 30% and even as high as 50% lifetime risk. But 13.4% are greater than 50%. And that's a threshold at which we would consider a discussion around surgical intervention. And 24% are low risk. And while those women still need to obviously be vigilant, um, they may make different choices, say, around preventive medication. It's also been shown that the PRS is more effective when combined with a family-based history-based history, history -based model, such as the Tyrakusic model, which is what I typically use in clinic. And it makes sense, you know, to use the women's own genomic information, not as an end-all be-all, but as a piece of risk information that can be added to the other risk factors uh, makes a lot of sense and in fact has been shown to improve the discriminatory accuracy of uh, the prediction. This is in using the Tyracusic model alone and using the PRS alone. And this is in, in two validation cohorts using both. And you really see the, uh, the, the benefit of, of adding both. This is an abstract that Alicia uh, and others have submitted to San Antonio uh, 
discussing the validation of that combination with the new polygenic risk score in combination with the tyroacoustic risk model. And where I think clinically we're going to see the most exciting initial use of the polygenic risk score is in helping women to decide about preventive medication. Chemo prevention uptake is simply miserable in all groups, and women are afraid to take it. They're afraid of the side effects. Um, this was a study out of the Mayo Clinic genre looking at the willingness of a woman to take preventive medication at the time of her standardized consult and after receiving results from the polygenic risk score in addition to a, a traditional risk estimation model. And this initial pilot was done in non-gene carriers high-risk women, but non-gene carriers. And as you can see, some women's risk estimate went down with the addition of the polygenic risk score, and in others, it went up. And as expected, in those where it went down, they were less likely to take preventive medication. And in those that went up, they were more likely to take preventive medication. So it's kind of a no-brainer. We are planning to um, participate in the second phase of this genre study, the genre two study, which will incorporate gene carriers as well, asking a similar question about chemo prevention update, uptake. So I really think that the future directions in, um, in risk assessment are going to be in the field of the polygenic risk score. I think that we'll be doing a lot more with breast density and the polygenic risk score can also help in prediction of contralateral breast cancer risk. And there were some more recent papers being published on that. It, it's just, the field is booming and, and it um, really can help women make all sorts of different decisions, whether it's screening, whether it's chemo prevention uptake. In some very high risk women, it may be relevant for surgical decision making in the preventive setting, but also in newly diagnosed cancer patients. And so, how does it fit into risk assessment? SNPs may explain up to 20% of this missing heritability. Uh, the PRS increases the discriminatory accuracy of risk models in gene negative patients or in those with the US or in those that are untested and may also aid in decision-making for gene positive patients, especially in those with moderate risk genes. So thank you again for having me here today. And um, I add a little bit of a, of a clinical bent um, to the to the discussion and and I look forward to talking more about it with all of you. Yeah, that was fantastic, Holly. Uh, thank you so much. Um, let's let's pause for questions um, after that great presentation. We covered a lot of ground. I have a couple in the chat, but I'm going to open it up to see if anybody just wants to come off mute and ask before I throw a few out there. I do have a, a couple of questions. This is Susana from the Internal Medical Services with Myriad. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Peterson, for the uh, presentation. 
my, my question is in regards to how different clinics handle the higher end of the risk uh, with risk score. So our team, we provide medical support to our accounts and we get a lot of calls from freaked out patients who get a high number, 60, 70%, you know, asking what should I do? They're recommending surgery. Um, and the direction that we have been given is to actually say, you know, this tool is not designed to guide surgical decisions. It's, it's meant to tell if additional screening is necessary. And this seems to contradict a little bit with what you're doing in your clinic. So how, how do we, you know, without formal direction from, from professional societies, you know, we're seeing a lot of variation depending on the clinic. How, sure. how do we handle that? Yeah, these are all, you bring up so many great points with this one question. So um, number one, we just use clinical judgment when it comes to surgical decision-making. Um, and I would repeat that three or four times that we, do, we don't operate on numbers of any type. And in fact, we don't ever recommend risk-reducing mastectomy in any setting ever. We only offer a discussion around risk-reducing mastectomy when we feel that the likelihood of the woman getting cancer in her lifetime is outweighs, you know, that she's more likely than not to get breast cancer in her lifetime. That's when we even broach the topic of risk-reducing mastectomy. But I always make it clear to, to a woman that this is never a recommendation, but is her personal choice because we do have the alternative of screening and the addition of preventive medication. One thing that I would point out to your providers that I, I believe Dr. Slavin may have taught me um, way back when is that, you know, we are all more likely to succumb to, to cardiovascular disease than to breast cancer. And so that competing mortality box in the upper right corner of the tyroacoustic model should really always be checked. And that often kind of brings the numbers down into a, a, a range that is, um, that is uh, less frightening for patients. I think that we don't know exactly where the correct risk level is, and we don't use the numbers to make clinical decisions. And so um, we use the Tyracusic lifetime risk model as it is a family history-based risk model to, uh, to determine eligibility for MRI screening. And I use the 10-year risk of 5% or greater to encourage a woman to consider preventive medication based on the ASCO recommendations, but we do not use those numbers at all surgically. And, and I, that's a, a huge mistake that's being made 
I think in the in the general um, public, and and we all need to work together to help educate our providers around that. Check the competing mortality box. Use the model for MRI eligibility and discussions around chemo prevention. But we don't ever operate based on risk estimation numbers. Okay, that make that is very helpful. Thank you, and sure. I. You know, I'm excited about what you say about breast density because that can make a huge issue, sorry, a huge difference. And, um, you know, as you know, with risk score, we're using version seven. So hopefully in the future, we, we can be moving in that direction. Thank you. Well, you know, I talked to Alicia and the scientific team about why seven is used. I assumed it was probably because um, they because you didn't have all the information on the breast density, but there is some question around the um, accuracy of the breast density calculation that's in TC8. Um, you notice how drastically it changes, you know, if you're scattered or heterogeneous and certainly if you're extremely dense and the, the, the modeling was done based on a, a very small number of patients really. And so it's an opportunity for us to sort of recreate that work. Um, but, uh, it, 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 I always thought it was unfortunate that we didn't use eight, but now I understand that it, it actually might be due to a question in accuracy and validation with, with the addition of the breast density. I do believe it's a huge factor, but I'm not sure that they've gotten it honed, honed in right yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the only other thing I'll add to this is, yeah, Alicia's working on it. I mean, I saw some stuff even from her last week. Um, so I think it's a matter of time before we kind of get it right, but we want to make sure it's, you know, accurate and, you know, not preemptively rolled out. Um, and then otherwise, I mean, you know, I, I don't know, others might remember differently, but I thought when Tyra Cusick eight came out, one of the big differences was that it went to uh, age 85 and Tyra Cusick was age 80, but now it seems like the version seven that's out there goes to 85 as well. So Otherwise, um, you know, they don't seem to have any appreciable differences, um, you know, outside of the breast density. I think there's one other uh, box that's escaping me at the moment. That's, that's male, male um, breast cancer. Yeah, my, minor things. I so. don't think they had male on TC7. Yeah. So the, the big things are, are breast density. And then, um, you know, most people have no idea, but actually entire Cusick version eight, if you go to the top in the tools, uh, there's actually a drop down and you can put a PRS, PRS score in. Put it in there. Yeah. 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 So when, you know, it, it is kind of like what we essentially, you know, have here is, uh, um, you know, with risk score is really just, uh, and, and the way I kind of think about it sometimes is an enhanced model of Tyracusic version eight and, or Tyre, not version eight, Tyracusic, I should say. Um, and then, you know, one way you can actually, um, you know, play around with the numbers a little bit. I mean, we're working hard on trying to get a, a calculator out so people can recalculate things if, you know, family history changes or whatever. Um, you know, a lot of people see referrals, um, in the community and maybe the TRF wasn't filled out correctly or something. And they want to add variables, uh, that weren't on the original, uh, TRF for the Tyracusic. 
uh, risk estimate, uh, but we're working hard to get that out. But in the meantime, I mean, you can actually take the relative risk number that's in the, um, the, on the report. Uh, now we put it at the bottom. It's kind of hidden. It's in the paragraph uh, on the second page, uh, sometimes the third page. Uh, but it'll be like 1.8 or something like that. That's the relative risk of the uh, polygenic risk score component itself. And you can plug that into Tyrecusic. And talking with Alicia and uh, Tyrecusic version 8, and talking with Alicia and Sasha, they don't think it would, uh, uh, they think it should be actually fairly accurate unless there's massive swings for some reason on the reported versus the updated uh, breast cancer family history, because we do do some, uh, we have to control for the double counting. Uh, for the family history component that's kind of inherent in polygenic risk scores themselves and then uh, in the Tyrecusic model. And so there's a little tweaking of that final uh, polygenic uh, relative risk score at the end that has, it's kind of been based on family history. Well, I think it's kind of interesting about the, um, you know, the, the double counting that you refer to. And I think that in some ways, we probably need to look back at atypical hyperplasia and LCIS in that same way, because with you know the the large benign disease database that Mayo maintains and studies, they showed that you know the addition of atypia to a person with family history, although the models you know, add it together, it really should stay where it, where it was. And so I think you're double counting with a tip. I mean, I think atypia and LCIS are probably part of the spectrum of having family history, mm -hmm. you know, it's just developing breast cancer. And so, um, that also is an issue. Yeah, we have that in, as an exclusion right now. Um, <laughs> it's why when we, if you look at some of those papers like that uh, 2021 Hughes paper, you'll see kind of a top off of Tyrecusic around like 45% when we do our calculations because we don't have ADH or LCIS, which are really kind of the, the variables that drive it above uh, 45%, where you'll see risk score kind of have a spread out to like, you know, 70 or 80% sometimes. So good question. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about um, self-reported ancestry and how that is or isn't used. Holly, you gave a very nice kind of overview of how the 56 ancestral SNPs were chosen, but how does that coincide with self-reported ancestry? Well, you know, I think that um, a lot of our a lot of our impressions of our ancestry are incorrect. <laughs> and, you know, I think that that's being shown in so many different ways. And people are fascinated by their ancestry and are, are using probably a lot of the same ancestral SNPs with these ancestry related tests that we are using in our genomic ancestry determination. Um, but I think that, you know, we don't know as much as we thought we knew about our backgrounds. What about, you talked about the three major kind of categories for ancestral um, SNP kind of determination of somebody's just basic ancestry. I'm assuming that hits the majority of people that live in the US, but what about those that may fall outside of those three? 
maybe TJ can answer this. Are we looking at anything um, at Myriad outside of those three, or um, can you just hit on those that maybe not fall into those three groups? There are some, some plots that Alicia can share. Mm -hmm. um, is Alicia on? I don't think I don't she's think on. I don't think so. Yeah, she's not see. on. So, you know, it, there is overlap and um, it, she can explain it best. TJ can probably explain it pretty well as well. But, but it, the, just like when you add more SNPs, it's not necessarily better after a certain point. You know, it, the incremental difference is, is really not significantly meaningful. Um, I think that the, uh, the way that they looked at the ancestral composition, it was similar where, where there were other, there certainly are a lot of other influencing areas, but if you take those three, you, you pretty much account for, for the genomic ancestry. But TJ, would you speak to that a little more? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, you know, the, so the way I kind of been, have been explaining it the last couple of weeks, <laughs> thinking about it in my own brain and kind of how to get it across to people is, um, you know, for, for each one of the breast cancer SNPs, we're essentially trying to see where in the world it came from. So if you, if you think about it that way, and um, a good way to do that is to know where, you know, in a perfect world, you would know for each breast cancer SNP, you'd have some SNP in the region uh, that uh, you knew, uh, you know, came from this ancestry or that ancestry or that ancestry, and then you could weight it. You'd have uh, weight information across, you know, 20 ancestries, for instance, on, you know, breast cancer risk based on that particular SNP uh, in the literature. We just don't have that. So essentially, um, you know, picking the most homogeneous source populations of the world um, is a really good way to just calibrate the model. Um, and Alicia has looked at all self-reported ancestries on our test request form, even though we haven't published this, and it fits very well. Like the, the model works very well, uh, whether it's, you know, Middle Eastern, uh, Native American, um, you know, um, uh, I think uh, Pacific Islander is in there. I mean, everything has, has really shown uh, good model fit. So we don't have any concern that it's not going to work across uh, all ancestries. I mean, we'll continue to improve on this. I mean, this is just a version in the path towards, you know, getting more and more precise uh, risk estimators. Um, you know, if you think about like, you know, BRCA one and two or Lynch syndrome and all these things, I mean, over the years, you figure out ways to improve. You do, you know, oh, these large rearrangements. Okay. I guess we have to look at these, you know, oh, Boland inversion for MSH2. Oh, I guess we got to, you know, look at this. And that, that's no difference here. I mean, it's a continual, continuous learning process. What I will say is I think that the core concept of adding background uh, ancestry genetics to determine the breast cancer SNP uh, weighting is really innovative. Like that, like hats off to Alicia and Sasha and uh, Jerry and team, because, you know, that really, I think will take polygenic risk score mm -hmm. analyses to the absolute next level. And so we have a publication, you know, under review right now at uh, an extremely good journal. <laughs> we'll see, fingers crossed. Uh, and uh, Holly's uh, part of that as well. Uh, and so hopefully we can get it all this work out into the literature soon, but it will change. I think the way people even, you know, approach doing these kind of ancestral SNP studies from here on out. The way I like to look at it is, you know, historically we've used risk models. I used to use them in practice 
every day as well, and I know Holly uses them. It is a tool that we can use to help kind of hone in on what this particular person's risk likely is. And it's not perfect and it's not um, exact. And I think PRS and I think risk score uh, combining those Tyracusic historic um, factors along with the PRS is a, a refinement of risk and it helps us um, paint a more maybe accurate and uh, um, appropriate picture of what that patient's risk probably is. But nothing is exact and nothing is, is perfect but it is a refinement of risk above and beyond what Tyracusic can offer. And I wanna reiterate something that Holly said um, that uh, Susanna San Roman brought up that uh, if patients are calling in saying that they were recommended to have a mastectomy or recommended to have surgery, we don't even recommend um, risk-reducing mastectomy in those with at the highest mm -hmm. inherited risk point. with the BRCA mutations. So the only time we're recommending surgery is um, uh, bilateral salpingo-oophorectomy because we don't have good screening tools to identify early ovarian cancer. But we have excellent um, tools with MRI and mammography to um, screen and early detect breast cancer. So I just wanted to reiterate that, that there is no genetic mutation even that has a recommendation for mastectomy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. And and the risk-reducing salpingo-oophorectomy is thus far the only intervention that has been shown to reduce mortality in this group right. of, of women. The other, right. you know, the way I look at risk modeling, you know, until now, <laughs> until we've incorporated actual genomic information, it is not really so much to predict risk as it is to, uh, to be used for inclusion in clinical trials, to reassure patients that are not at high risk, to help you know, convince patients that they might consider preventive medication based on thresholds set forth by societies like ASCO and to, you know, to uh, qualify them for MRI screening to enable enhanced surveillance in a woman who you believe to be high risk. I don't use the risk models in a patient who's, you know, who has no family history and has a radial scar. You know, I, this sort of across the board risk modeling philosophy is, is a little bit worrisome to me. I think that you need to use some clinical judgment in terms of who you're targeting for risk modeling and why you're doing the risk modeling. Because until it becomes genomic and the breast density is appropriately integrated, and they account for alcohol and the use of preventive medication and other factors until it's a really accurate tool. I'm not sure that estimating risk is really, you know, at the top of my list of uses for it. Well, TJ, we have about five minutes left. Yeah, let me, um, yeah, let me, 
Yeah. I can walk through this really quick. Um, can people see this? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I've been working on this a little bit because <clears throat> a lot of people have been seeing, you know, the polygenic risk component kind of as a black box. And, um, uh, you know, I'm using check to I-157T as an example. So a lot of people on the call know this is a headache variant to say the least. So it's a common uh, check two variant uh, frequent in the population. It's about one in 200 uh, um, in, uh, European individuals. Uh, very hard to figure out how to uh, take care of it. Uh, some labs call it likely pathogenic, pathogenic, reduced penetrance, uh, VUS, all kinds of things. And, you know, how do you work up a family like this? So you have a breast cancer um, in a mom, you know, check two I-157T positive, um, you know, and then has uh, many children, some positive, some negative. And, you know, is there a way that you can, you know, sort this kind of family out? Um, I'm not going to belabor this, but essentially, you know, uh, SNPs, the, as we've been talking about, this one's actually not quite a SNP because it's actually uh, a little bit below this 1% <laughs> population frequency. So it's actually called a single nucleotide variant, would be similar to like uh, Ashkenazi Jewish uh, BRCA1 uh, variant, um, you know, that sit under 1% population frequency uh, as a whole. Um, this is some work that uh, <clears throat> um, I, I'm uh, working on with Aaron Munt, and uh, this is uh, about to be submitted. Uh, but we've been looking at, uh, in our own cohort, check 2 I-157T, and clearly it sits at a very different risk level than um, uh, what we call even missense variants, likely pathogenic and pathogenic, and uh, which we also don't call the S428F, which some people are familiar with as well in check 2 uh, a pathogenic mutation. So if you actually look at what we call um, here as truncating or missense, <laughs> likely pathogenic or pathogenic variants, <clears throat> they tend to have about a two to two and a half fold um, increase uh, for breast cancer risk and check two I-157T is way lower. Um, and so, you know, how do you kind of pull this into, you know, a workup for a patient? You know, there's a little bit increased risk, you know, you see it here, it's not zero, it's not crossing one. So there's some slight risk. It looks like a SNP is the bottom line. And, uh, you know, we know risk SNPs are common and they cause a little bit increased risk for breast cancer. And this is really what I wanted to show because a lot of people have no idea that unbeknownst to many, you know, check two I-157T. And actually, I didn't even know this before I started, is the highest odds ratio SNP in risk score. So if you actually look at the Mavidot 2015 paper, um, which is where a lot of the SNPs came from uh, for our polygenic risk score for breast cancer, check two I-157 was one of the SNPs. And it does uh, perform with the highest odds ratios. Uh, there's a BRCA2 polymorphic stop codon, which some people may have come across here and there. Um, also somewhat frequent in the population. There's always kind of been a back and forth of whether there's an association with different cancers. Uh, seems like it has a little bit increased risk for breast cancer. It's the second highest risk uh, SNP in risk score. Uh, there's an FGFR2 SNP. Uh, that's the third highest SNP. Uh, this ESR1, this is that um, Amerindian SNP. This is the Latin America. It's the estrogen receptor. Uh, it's actually a protective SNP. Uh, but you see the odds ratios are just, you know, slightly higher. Uh, and that's how risk score was made. You put in the, the SNP with the highest odds ratio, you look for model fit and you add the next one. And, and uh, that's how we kind of topped out around 93. So, you know, the benefits of this type of test is it's, honestly, it's the most accurate test you could do for someone with a I-157T mutation because, you know, you can actually calculate 
uh, using Tyracusic modeling with uh, the uh, availability of the polygenic risk score on top, you can get really accurate risk scores now. So if, if uh, this woman's daughter came back positive for I-157T, it would bring in all the other clinical and family history variables, which are important to figure out like how important is that I-157T to this whole thing. Uh, and then all the other background genetic factors. Um, and, you know, you can see big swings in families. I mean, you know, some women, if they have more unfavorable polygenic risk scores could have a, a much higher uh, risk score, uh, whether they have the mutation or not. So that's, you know, some of the benefit of uh, doing this type of testing. I just wanted to show that to folks because, you know, hopefully these kind of things um, make it less of a black box, um, you know, kind of grounded in, you know, this is really all comes from Mendelian genetics. We're just kind of adding Mendelian genetics on top of each other. I mean, where, where I really anticipate this whole field going is, you know, probably like your risk for breast cancer or colon cancer is X. And it's based on all of these other things, you know, whether you have a mutation, you know, other tyrocusic variables or whatever it may be, you know, risk snips in the background, all these other things kind of giving more cumulative um, uh, numbers. And it may bring in, you know, some of these genes that, you know, we're always looking at like NTHL1 and all these things that we're like, well, you know, it has a really low risk. They function like SNPs essentially. So, you know, I think there will be a day where we start bringing in all that data to really inform, uh, you know, the risks to the extent we can for precision. And, you know, I think that that initial graph, which we all see and we all start with, with, the you know, the pie pieces and 70% of women, you know, we have no idea what's going on. I think we, you know, when the day comes that we truly can estimate risk, that whole chart will flip and we'll understand 70% and won't understand 30%, you know? Mm -hmm. And we understand so little, I think, at this point, and that that chart just sort of says it all. So yeah. we're, we're moving toward, you know, we're moving in the right direction. And and thank you to to Myriad and to the work that Alicia and Sasha and Jerry do. And, and it's a great scientific team. Yeah, for sure. Well, great. Well, we're at time. We're actually over now by a minute. I want to thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Peterson so much for coming on. As always, you killed it. Uh, you were amazing. <laughs> thank oh, you. Thank also. you. Thanks so <laughs> yeah, much for thanks. having me. Okay. Yeah, no, this is great. And thanks Edie for running the chat and uh, look forward to seeing everybody Perfect. in a few weeks. Great. Bye. Bye. All right. Bye. Thank you.